So welcome. Thank you for choosing to spend an hour with me talking about a super fun topic, anxiety. Who's excited about anxiety? <laughs> Woo! Um, and I joke about it. Um, therapists kind of have a little bit of dark humor. We kind of, it's our coping. <laughs> it's how we cope. Um, but at the same time, I actually do feel joy that you're here. And even as we're going to talk about some hard things, because anxiety is hard. Anxiety can be um, painful. It can be a real struggle. But what I've learned as both a client and a therapist, because I have been on the other side, um, is that when you talk about the hard things, um, they often get a little less hard. Or we are able to explore and get more understanding. And as we get more understanding, we have more wisdom in how to move forward. So when we just try to ignore and stuff the difficult things, they often get bigger. They often fester. So when we acknowledge the hard things, when we talk about the hard things, that's our first step towards transformation and change. Not unlock like our relationships with God, right? It just takes that first step of deciding yeah, I'm going to admit my need for God. So it's the same with all change. It's just that first step of acknowledging what's going on for you. So just showing up here, you've already done that. And some of you might be here um, because you yourselves um, have anxiety, you experience it, you struggle with it. And some of you might be here because you have a loved one um, who struggles with it, um, and maybe both. Um, I've had several parents come up to me and, and say, I have anxiety and now I see it coming out in my daughter. And they're like, no, I don't want her to deal with that. Um, which is so great that they're like, well, no, I want her to have it better than me. So whatever your reasons for being here, I think it's great. I'm so glad you're here. So um, I will, at any time, if, if I'm talking about something and you're like, wait, I don't get it or what the heck, please feel free to raise your hand and ask questions. Um, I'm happy to answer them to the best of my ability. Um, I also will say, if, um, if I'm going too fast, I just feel like I have so much to say in such a short period of time, and I get really excited, and um, I can talk forever about this stuff. So if I'm going too fast, you can like give me like a time out, like slow down. Um, so just let me know what you guys need, OK? Is that fair? Yeah. All right, awesome. So I guess it's a good place to start to just say, what do I mean when I say anxiety? Because we can all have different ideas of what this means. So some simple ways that I define anxiety are fear of the future. Um, specifically, anxiety is not just fear. Um, how I kind of distinguish them is fear is something that's happening right now. If you're taking a lovely walk through the forest here, um, and a bear jumps out and starts to chase you, that's fear. That's, I am currently in danger and I am afraid. Normal response, right? Um, anxiety is you're walking through the forest and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what if, what if a bear jumps out and starts chasing me? That what if, that anticipation, that not knowing, that is anxiety. So you're fearing the future. And that can be very difficult because you don't know what the future holds. We really don't. And so it's hard to get out of that what if spiral and cycle. Um, it's another way to think about it. It's, it's this feeling of worry, nervousness, unease. Um, and again, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. So maybe um, you have a presentation you're giving at work or you're presenting a new idea and you're not sure how it's going to go over. Maybe you're going to have um, a hard conversation with a friend or family member. You're not sure how it's going to go. So you might feel kind of nervous about it. You might feel some anxiety about it. And anxiety can be in our thoughts. We can have these anxious thoughts. Like I always say, what if is the tagline of anxiety? When If you have a bunch of thoughts of, well, what if this happens? What if that? Chances are you're experiencing anxiety. Um, we can also experience anxiety in our bodies. Um, you're probably familiar with some of the sensations. It can be your heart rate increasing, your breath shortening, um, maybe your palms getting sweaty or other parts of you getting sweaty, um, just maybe feeling a little weak. Sometimes people even get tunnel vision. Um, there's a lot of different physical symptoms of it. So some people might experience those physical symptoms as well, tenseness in the muscles as well. Um, this is actually interesting. Just take a moment and um, notice your body right now 
and notice if there's any place that you're holding some tension. And if you notice that you're holding tension, just as in your next inhale, just imagine that you're like breathing into that space. And when you exhale, just allow yourself to relax that part of your body. I'm doing it too. <laughs> um, how many of you noticed that you had tension in your bodies? Uh-huh. Yeah. We don't even notice. So every once in a while, that's a good thing to do. I'll notice that in sessions that I'm tense, and I'm like, if I'm trying to get this person to relax, I better relax too. So that was just a fun little, um, little uh, freebie of <laughs> something you can practice to just have that awareness of when you're tense. Um, so again, anxiety, it's also a very normal human experience. Um, it's something we all experience at some point in our lives. Sometimes it's just when there's actually a stressful thing coming up or, you know, something that you, um, like a big event. So sometimes it really is just situational, and sometimes it's a little more chronic. And so um, stress and anxiety aren't all bad, excuse me, um, because when we have a certain level of stress or anxiety, it actually helps us perform at our best. Um, because if you didn't care at all about the thing that you have to do, you're not going to be as motivated. But if you're just like, okay, well, I got to do this because I want it to be good, then that level of stress, that stress that motivates you to do your best, that can be really positive. But when it becomes too much, um, that's when it can become debilitating. And um, either when it's too intense or too frequent, that's when you can maybe get into anxiety disorder territory where you actually meet this criteria for a specific um, diagnosis that I as a therapist could give. So that could be generalized anxiety disorder, that could be panic disorder, unspecified anxiety disorder. But even if you don't meet the specific criteria for any of those disorders, your anxiety can still be a real problem for you. It can still be really difficult and um, uncomfortable for you. So you don't necessarily need the label to have it be validated. And so where does anxiety come from? There's probably more places than what I'm going to talk about. But first, I like to acknowledge that anxiety can have a physiological, medical basis. A lot of times, if I have a client who comes in and saying either they are depressed or anxious, I ask them, when was the last time you had a physical? And if it's been a few years, um, I say, well, maybe go, go get a physical, maybe get some blood work done, and let's just make sure everything's good on the medical end, because there are certain medical issues that can affect your mood, that can affect your nervous system. And so if that's all it is, then you can treat that, and the mood disturbance goes away too. And wouldn't that be great? You kill two birds with one stone. Um, so that's something that's important to know. Um, and then also our anxiety can be, um, have its origins and then be fueled and made bigger through our thought life. And I'm going to spend a good amount of today talking about how our thought life is connected to anxiety and other difficult emotions and um, experiences. And then lastly, I'll spend a little bit of time, not as much time, talking about how anxiety can be a symptom of, um, of trauma. So, and I will define trauma in more, um, in more depth, but just basically um, difficult, overwhelming experiences, painful experiences can then cause us to have anxiety in the future. And sometimes, a lot, actually I'll say a lot of times when it is a trauma response, um, the anxiety is very involuntary. And it may feel like I, there's no reason for me to be anxious right now. I don't know why I'm anxious. And it can feel a little crazy-making, like people think they're cracking up. Um, so as we talk about that, I hope that you'll see that if that is you, that you're not going crazy. It's actually a very understandable thing once you understand trauma and how it affects our brains and our bodies. So today, again, I'm going to be talking about our thought lives and then a little bit about trauma. And you'll see when I get there why I think it's important to talk about that. But if you get nothing else out of today, I really hope you can leave here really believing this, that oftentimes our anxiety is not a sin issue to repent of, but a wound that needs Jesus' healing. And I gave a little spiel, you know, when I was introducing this, I talked about how as Christians we can feel ashamed 
of our anxiety because there's these Bible verses that talk about not being anxious. And so then when we are anxious and we're not able to calm ourselves down with scripture or with prayer, we wonder, what's wrong with me? Am I not trusting God enough? Is there some sin in my life? Um, And I think sometimes that could be the case. Um, And I will just out myself. I'm teaching this because I am an anxious person. (laughs) I've always kind of just veered towards worry um, since I was a kid. So I've had to learn how to deal with it. And I've also, I've acknowledged throughout my spiritual life with God that there are definitely times where my anxiety has come from a place of not trusting in the goodness of God. So sometimes that absolutely can be be the case. But I think it's unwise for us to immediately assume that that is the basis of why our anxiety isn't going away, that it's obviously a lack of faith, because there's a lot of other factors, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And if we're just beating ourselves up and beating ourselves up, that doesn't help anything. That doesn't make us get better. And if you look at Jesus, how he interacted with suffering people, I, I never once see him shaming them for their, for their wounds. Um, The tricky thing about anxiety is it's a wound that you can't see, Um, as with all mental health issues, right? People are dealing with something that may be just as debilitating as a physical ailment, but you can't see it, so it's a lot easier to judge it and um, invalidate it. So our anxiety, it might just be a wound that needs Jesus healing. So I hope, um, I always tell my clients, uh, to be curious, not judgmental. So as we talk about this, as maybe you hear things that resonate with you, I invite you to be curious about what is going on for you. What is it? What's causing your anxiety? What's causing your loved one's anxiety? Rather than judging it and saying it just shouldn't be there. Um, well, it is. So whether it should or shouldn't, that's kind of a non-issue, right? Because it is. <laughs> so what do we do about it? Instead, to be curious, because then if we're curious and we ask questions, we understand, like I said, then we can do something about it. So since we're talking about healing anxiety with biblical principles, we should probably look at the Bible, um, because it's not coming from me. These ideas are not original. Um, I'm stealing them from the Lord. Um, And so we're going to look at a few passages that are probably familiar to most of you. So the first one is this Philippians passage, do not be anxious about anything, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I love this passage. I pray this all the time. Like I said, I'm a worrier. So I pray for God's peace that surpasses understanding. And I've experienced it, and I'm so thankful for it. Um, And also, if this verse just stopped after do not be anxious about anything, it'd kind of be like, well, shoot. (laughs) um, If it were that easy, you know, I wouldn't be here right now. Um, But thankfully, it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, you know, give your requests to God. Let him know what you need. Um, Bring it to him in prayer. Um, There's something, something we can do, and then God responds. And that's so beautiful. Um, I think there's so much hope in that. And just showing that God cares about those things. Um, But we'll dig in a little more to the wisdom of this passage. But next we're looking at, um, from Matthew, this is Jesus speaking. This is another one of my, I think of this all the time because I need to because I'm an anxious person. Um, He says, therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Again, there's so much wisdom there. Um, And I think it's always important when you're pulling out verses is to know the context of it because I could pull out verses and just make them mean what I want them to mean, but that's not a smart idea. Don't mess with the word of God. (laughs) Um, So before this, Jesus is talking about treasures in heaven um, and how you can't serve both God and money. 
Um, so really the theme here is not allowing the material things of life to become an idol, to not let those be the main priority or the main concern of your life. Um, and then, so whenever there's a therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for, right? So um, I know that's a little nerdy seminary thing. Um, so yeah, so before this, he is talking about the material world um, and where it needs to go in terms of the hierarchy of importance in your life. Um, a last passage for us to look at, again, this is Jesus talking to Martha, whose sister is Mary. Um, Jesus is in their home. And so that's a big deal. And Mary, or I'm sorry, Martha is running around trying to be the perfect hostess. Um, she's doing everything, making sure everyone's taken care of. And her sister Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, just listening to him teach, having a grand old time. Martha is getting resentful. She's not happy with this. So she says, Jesus, tell my sister to help me. What the heck? What's she doing? Um, and Jesus' response is so kind, but also honest. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So again, I love that, those priorities. She's so anxious about everything getting done, um, but Mary is sitting at the feet of the Messiah and listening to him speak. Like, when you really look at it from that perspective, it's like, is it really, does it really matter that this spot on the floor is clean compared to this? Um, but he's acknowledging that you're anxious and troubled. I see that, okay? Um, and I hear a lot of kindness in this. So with each of these passages and others in the New Testament, and sometimes the Bible translates it as worry. So when you see anxious or worry, it's the same Greek word. So doing word studies can be really helpful to bring more meaning because when we read anxious or anxiety in the Bible, we have our, again, our ideas of what that means. But my guess is that anxiety does, did not mean the same thing to first century Middle Eastern people as it does to 21st century Americans because we have all this information and knowledge about our brains, our nervous systems, psychology, like these weren't things back then. Um, so I have to ask myself, well, what did that mean to them? And so I looked up that word. It's the same word for all those passages. And what it means is to be anxious about. So I'm like, OK, that's not very helpful. Um, to be careful or to take thought. And so that, I think, is very important. So in the Bible, anxiety is talking about our thoughts and thoughts that are in direct opposition to trusting in the goodness and provision of God. And so I think this is so important because the Bible is not talking about physiological medical issues that contribute to feelings of anxiety. And it is not talking about anxiety that comes from a trauma response. So. Again, this is so important because if you're in one of those two categories and you're anxious and you're praying and you're reading scripture and your anxiety isn't going away and you're beating yourself up about it, you know, kind of to take yourself off the hook because that's not the anxiety the Bible's talking about. I still think God cares about it very much and wants to be with you in that, but you don't need to be beating yourself up about it. And... The Bible also has a lot to say about our thoughts. So I think God knows how important they are, how much they affect us. And so God doesn't just tell us to stop it or to knock it off and then give us nothing. Um, has anyone ever seen that Bob Newhart sketch where he's the therapist? And his, uh, his treatment is just to yell, stop it! Um, they showed that to us like so many times in my graduate school program. And I think, and we all laugh because we know that doesn't work, right? So that's also why I tell you not to beat yourself up, because just telling yourself to stop it, if it, again, if it were that easy, none of us would be here. I probably wouldn't have a career, and, you know, and then that would be great, because we could all just be like, hey, anxiety, stop it, and we wouldn't have anxiety. But obviously, it doesn't work like that. So um, God doesn't just tell us to stop it. He doesn't just say, knock it off. He says, hey, Let's not do this. Let me, let me show you what you can do about it. So let's look at that. Um, going back to this passage from Jesus, 
again, there's so much wisdom in here. Um, one of my favorites is um, when he asks, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? What a good rhetorical question. Like, because we all know the answer, right? Like, can any of you, have any of you figured out how to add hours to your life? Like, no. Okay, great. That would probably be a little creepy and mess up the time-space continuum, or I don't know, um, be a little sci-fi. But the answer is obviously no one can. But um, a lot of times I see people who have anxiety and I ask them, like, well, what, what if you just let go of these worries? And they're just like, well, I can't. And they, they don't know why. They're just like, I can't. And there's some part of them that really thinks that their anxiety is productive, that if they stop worrying, then the bad thing is going to happen, which when we're objective and on the outside, it's like, well, that's obviously not true. That doesn't make any logical sense. But when you're anxious, you're not being logical. You're not being rational. So that feels very true to us. And so sometimes a first step in managing our anxiety is realizing that worrying or being anxious does not help anything. It does not add a single hour to your span of life. It does not help the difficult situation. It does not produce any fruit. And that's not to say, again, I hope that you're not hearing me say, so just stop it. But it's just, let's, let's acknowledge reality. I think that's the first step, is to say, OK, I'm worrying. And I think that my worry is helping the situation, but it's really not. All it's doing is making me lose sleep, which is actually probably making the situation worse. Um, sometimes the first step is just, let's be real with what's going on here. And Jesus says, your anxiety does not help anything. And even saying, don't even be anxious about tomorrow, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So like, be present, you know, and worry about what's happening right now, the things that you can do something about now. And so that's another piece, is asking yourself, if you are worried or anxious about something, is there anything I can do about this right now? If you need to prepare um, for a presentation, if you're planning an event, and you're worried about it, like, is there something you can just do so that you don't have to think about it? For me, I write tons of to-do lists because if it's in my head, I can't stop thinking about it. But then I write it down, and I don't have to think about it anymore because I'm like, it's written down. I won't forget. Um, or sometimes I've, I've actually been trying to sleep, and I can't sleep. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to get up and do that thing so I can actually fall asleep. And that can work. Um, so if there is something you can do, just go do it and just be done with it. Be free from your anxiety. But sometimes there isn't anything you can do about it in that moment. And that's when we have to work to let it go, which again, easier said than done. So some people are able to say, yeah, I'm not going to be anxious about tomorrow. I'm not there yet. So you could say to yourself, well, there's nothing I can do about this right now. So I'm going to just relax. And you know, tomorrow or next week, when it is time to deal with that, I'll deal with it then. So some people are able to do that, and some people aren't. It's too hard. Um, sometimes I actually schedule my worry and anxiety. I say, I'm not allowed to freak out about this until next week. Like, if this still hasn't gotten done by next Wednesday, then I can start freaking out. <laughs> and it actually does help. Um, Again, it's just being real. It's like, well, yeah, I can sit here and worry about it, but that doesn't help anything. And right now, there's nothing I can really do about it. So we have to acknowledge that there are situations where we don't have control or where we are kind of powerless. And that's hard for us to do as humans. We don't like it. So if there isn't anything you can do about the situation and you're really not able to let it go, another thing I'll often do with myself and with my clients is to ask them to play out their worst case scenario. To actually say out loud, what are you afraid of? Like, what, what is your anxiety rooted in? What's that fear? Um, and a lot of people don't even know. And it's like, so you're just anxious, and like you don't even think anything bad is going to happen. So, and sometimes when they realize that, they're like, oh, OK. Um, so. This may sound kind of counterintuitive to like lean into the fear and anxiety. 
Um, but what I've often found is that when you externalize it, when you say it out loud, um, it doesn't feel as big or as scary or overwhelming as it does in your head. Like in your head, it's this tangled mess. And then when you say it out loud, it's like, oh, yeah, th there would still be some hard parts to that, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. This happened to me multiple times last week with my clients. Um, again, when it's us, we can't be objective, it's more difficult. So sometimes saying it out loud helps us to take a wider view and to see it in context. So it might be, um, like if I was nervous about give, or anxious about giving this seminar um, and I just couldn't sleep the night before, I could ask myself, okay, what's, my worst, what's the worst thing that could happen? Um, my iPad doesn't work, I forget my notes, and I have to do it all from memory, and I trip over my words, and I'm disorganized, and it's stressful. Okay, yeah, that, that would be unpleasant. Um, it's definitely easier with these aids for me. Um, but okay, then what would happen? So you just keep saying, and then what, and then what? And so I'd say, okay, and then what would happen? Well, I'd get through it, I know all the material. Um, so I, I would get through it, it probably wouldn't be my best but I'd get through it. Um, and then, okay, and then what? And it would be fine. And next time I would bring my stuff and it would be fine. So see, in my head I'm like, it would be the worst thing in the world. And when I say it out loud, it's like, yeah, it'd be a challenge, but it would not be the end of the world. So that's another practice you can, when you notice you're, anx you're anxious, to say, you know, what would be the worst thing that could happen? What am I afraid of happening? And to just play it out. And I'd say most of the time, it can lower our anxiety, just to say out loud what we're afraid of. And I've had so many people say, oh, it sounds really silly when I say it out loud. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, because it's different when it's in our heads. I will also say that this doesn't necessarily work for everyone, for every situation. But I'm saying, in my experience, most of the time, it can help at least a little bit. So also, the Bible talks to us about being aware of our thoughts. Um, the Bible shows that the way we think and the specific thoughts we have can cause or increase our anxiety. Um, and we also need to acknowledge that many of our thoughts that we have in our minds throughout the day are distorted or untrue in some way. Um, we have thousands of thoughts coming through our minds every minute. So doesn't it make sense that some of them would be untrue? Like, yeah. They're not all going to be quality, right? So the Bible talks about taking every thought captive for Christ, right? That's in 2 Corinthians. Um, one of my favorite passages is in Romans 12 when it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So wow, that's powerful that we are transformed when we renew our minds. And so one way that we do that is being aware of our thoughts being aware when we're entertaining beliefs that just aren't true, that have distortions, and replacing them with truth. Um, and there's a form of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy that I love because, you know, it's secular, but oh my gosh, it's so based in these biblical principles of being transformed by the renewing of our mind because the whole premise of this is you change your thoughts, you change your life. And that just sounds like Romans 12 to me, which is super awesome. So we can deal with our anxiety in a way that invites Jesus in by identifying the thoughts that cause or contribute to our anxiety and then comparing them with what the Bible says about us, about God, about our experiences. And so I'm going to share this concept with you. And in CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, there's an idea that our feelings do not come directly from events. They come from our beliefs about the event. And I have seen this to be very true in my life um, because you and I can have the exact same experience but have totally different feelings about it. Um, and that's because each of us has kind of this lens that we view the world through. And that lens is affected by different things we learn, um, different experiences we have. And so we all have a lens, but we often are very unconscious about it. We don't realize it's there. Um, so it's important for us to become aware of our lens, our, or another way you could say is your filter. Um, 
and to see, um, yeah, I do kind of interpret the world in these ways automatically, for better or for worse. Um, like for me, if, I, if I've had a lot of experiences that have taught me not to trust people, um, like I've been let down a lot, so maybe on my lens is like people aren't trustworthy. So maybe that's just this automatic negative thought that I have, this negative belief I carry. Um, and so let's say um, my best friend is supposed to meet me for coffee and you know, she, she doesn't make it because her baby, I, like all my friends are having babies right now, so this is my life, um, and her baby is just freaking out and she can't come. So if I have this lens of like people can't be trusted, they're not reliable, I might jump to this conclusion of, well, my, that friend's not to be trusted, she's not reliable, and then I might feel anger, I might feel hurt, um, and then my behavior might be to kind of back away from that friendship. But for you, as objective outsiders, how would you interpret if my friend called and said, hey, I can't make it, the baby isn't falling asleep, and I can't leave her? Like, how would you interpret that as an outsider? Like, it's a pretty, yeah, it's pretty cut and dry, right? Like, yeah, okay, real life, right? So you can see how when you have this lens, when you have these automatic negative thoughts, they can really twist reality. And it can feel so real in your mind. And so, um, so some ways that we can deal with that belief is um, to ask some questions, to be curious, right? So these are some questions that I often ask myself or I ask my clients um, to help um, figure out um, whether the beliefs we're holding are valid or not. Um, so you can ask, once you've identified what the thought is, um, you can ask, well, how true is this? Is this true? Um, what evidence do I have to support this thought? So kind of like gathering that evidence. It's like you're writing a persuasive essay, um, going back to high school. Um, is there evidence against it, or is there, are there any alternative possibilities for this? And a lot of times we don't even stop to think about that. Um, another one, I get people who are just like, well, just like everyone hates me. A lot of teenagers say that, like, well, everyone hates me. And I'm like, really, everyone? Every single person on the face of the planet? And I have to be careful with who I do that with because sometimes, yeah, sarcasm backfires. So use it with wisdom. And they'll be like, well, okay, not everyone. Or I'll say, well, I don't hate you, so not everyone hates you. Uh, maybe everyone minus one. Um, but that's how it feels. They feel like everyone hates them. Um, but then when I say, okay, well, so who hates you? Start listing it. And they'll be like, well, okay, it's just like this one group of girls. Oh, okay. So like five people hate you. Yeah. Okay, that's very different than everyone hates me, right? And they're, she's like, yeah, okay. Like, I get what you're saying. Uh. Um, <laughs> I love teenagers. <laughs> they keep it real. Um, yeah, and so even just simple things like that, just maybe, maybe our belief isn't completely untrue, maybe it's just a little untrue. Um, if you, for you married folks, uh, maybe your spouse is like, you always do this, or you never this, or your kids say, kids say that a lot, you never take us anywhere fun, mom. And it's like, I just took you to Disneyland last week. Um, but they have really short memories. Um, so maybe it's just a slight distortion. It's like, well, no, I do take you fun places, just not every single day. That's more accurate. So if we can, by asking these questions, we can help replace this distorted thought with a more true and accurate one. Um, and this is also important with deeper things. We have deeper beliefs about ourselves and the world around us. Um, we call these core negative beliefs. And some really common ones are, I'm not enough, um, I'm defective, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, um, I'm incompetent. So just these core beliefs about who we are. And we all have them. And what's really hard is we can totally believe in God and believe that he loves us and still have these. There's that dissonance between the two. So again, if we can become aware of those, then we can put well, what does God say about me? This is a lot about our identity. God says that I am chosen. 
he chose me before the foundation of the world. So that doesn't really fit with I'm unworthy and I'm unlovable because God saw me as worthy and lovable. So acknowledging the truth and acknowledging what is happening is a way to empower yourself to get free and to be free in Christ. Um, And I have lots of Christian clients who, again, they believe God is love, but not for them. And it's because they have these core negative beliefs that get in the way. And we can also have negative beliefs about God. And maybe they're subtle, or maybe they're super obvious to you. For me, I, I had to identify that Um, There's a time in my life where there's just a little part of me that didn't fully believe that God had the best for me. And so I would try to take matters into my own hands rather than letting things unfold in his time. And when I identified that, I got free because I was able to repent of my unbelief and choose to trust him based on the reality of who he is in scripture, that he's always faithful. And that was so healing for me. So again... Um, one way to deal with our anxiety is to become aware what are the beliefs that fuel our anxiety. So another way to do that is when you're feeling anxious, what thought is going with this or what am I thinking right now? To pause and to be aware of your thoughts. And maybe your thoughts are racing because that happens a lot, but even to say, be aware of any of them, right? Um, And then to question the thoughts. Once you identify what they are, well, is that true? What's the evidence for? What's the evidence against? Um, And then how might I tweak this thought or this belief to be more accurate? So maybe it's not all or every. Maybe it's some. Um, Maybe it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I am acceptable to God. That's accurate, right? Because we're not perfect. That's also a distortion (laughs) because we're not. So we do have control over our thoughts and our attitudes, which is really good news, because that means if our anxiety is rooted in the way we think um, and distorted ways of thinking, we can do something about it, and we don't have to be victims to it. I will say that developing this awareness and practicing these habits, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's not this light switch you flip, and then you're like, oh, I have complete control over my thought life now. No, it's like a muscle you have to work out. I still sometimes let this, let thoughts whiz by and affect me, and then I'll realize, like, at the end of the day, like, oh my gosh, I've been, like, upset all day because I'm believing this, and it's totally not true. So I'll go days before I realize it. But I will say, the more you do it, the more aware you become, the easier it gets. And the quicker you can catch those lies. And when you can catch them again, sometimes even just acknowledging what I'm believing right now is a lie, um, sometimes that can lower your anxiety. And I'll also be honest, there are times when I do this, and it doesn't make my anxiety go completely away, but it lowers it a lot. And I'm able to say, I feel like this is really horrible. I feel like this isn't good, but I know that's not true. So I'm not going to let those feelings control me and determine how I live my life right now. So it's still uncomfortable, but it's a lot better. Um, It's not debilitating. And that's just reality. It's not, there's not like this perfect fix. But I have found that these principles bring people a lot of relief. And so I hope you can think of ways to incorporate this into your life or your loved ones if they are anxious. You know, these, you can ask them all these same questions. So what, what are you thinking? What are the thoughts you're having? Um, yeah, so how do you know that's true? And also, if, if you're here because of a loved one, um, empathy first is always a good rule. Um, so rather than jumping in to fix it, um, yeah, this is, a, this is also very much a gender thing. Not always, but like, you know, there's the joke that men just want to fix it, right? Like, I'm not the only one who's experienced that, right? Yeah, okay, thank you. I see one hand. But um, that in general, like, ladies, if you bring up to your man, like, there's this problem. He might have to, well, why don't you do this? And then we get really mad because we're like, just listen to me. Um, so it's the same with everyone. Some of us really just... It's hard to see a loved one having a hard time, so we do want to fix it. 
but that can actually make people feel more alienated. Um, so if you have a loved one who struggles with anxiety and they're anxious with you, rather than jumping in like, oh, well, let's identify your thoughts and let's make this better and let's do this and da da da, to start with, because people don't really listen or take advice if they don't feel understood. Like in therapy, the first several sessions are just me showing I get it. I understand what's happening. Because then when people believe that I understand what their situation is and I really care about it, then they can receive from me. Um, so to start with like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you're anxious. That must really be hard. Yeah, it's awful. I hate it. I wish it wasn't this way. I know, me too. I, I wish I could just take this away from you. Um, you know, you, and even asking, is there anything I can do to help? Because they might have things that they already know that help them. Um, and then as you empathize and say, like, yeah, I'm really sorry, say, like, hey, like, you know, are there any, like, what are you thinking? Like, what are the thoughts that are making you anxious? Or are there any? Because maybe there aren't. But then just letting them talk about it and being that listening ear and sometimes just letting them talk about it is so helpful. So many people are like, oh, my gosh. I feel so much better after getting that all out. And it's like, yeah, that's why therapy is great. Um, but you don't always have to go to therapy. If you're a good friend with a good listening ear, like, wow, that can be so helpful. So that's just my little sidebar about supporting people with anxiety, to just listen and ask questions to understand first, to, to acknowledge with them, like, yeah, this is really hard. I'm really sorry, um, before offering advice or um, solutions to just ask those questions to be curious with them. So this is um, using the biblical principles around our thought life to help with our anxiety. So I'm going to transition to anxiety, which I just have about 15 minutes to do that. <laughs> Talk about trauma in 15 minutes. <laughs> That's fun. Um, but before I move on, are there just any questions about um, how our thoughts contribute to anxiety or what to do about that? or questions on anything I talked about. Great, you all completely understand, you're healed. Okay, yes. So my daughter. Well, yeah, you don't, it's, it's not fun to be around an anxious person. Well, I love, I love you taking responsibility for yourself of like, because a lot of times, I think it's important for us to acknowledge, sometimes we want to fix someone else because it makes us uncomfortable. And um, so it's like, are we really wanting to help for their sake or for our sake? So it's good to just be aware. And I'm, I've totally been guilty of that. So yeah, I love that you're acknowledging like, well, I have all my own stuff. So yeah, you have to be responsible for your feelings and reactions to your daughter's anxiety. And that's for you to manage. Um, but yeah, sometimes when people, um, when we experience any overwhelming emotion, anger, anxiety, whatever it might be, I kind of have this image where we're climbing a hill. And the more emotional we become, um, there's a line that's you know, converse to it, and it's going down, and that's our rationality. So as emotions get heightened, our ability to think clearly and rationally plummets. So this is true. Um, my, my couples in here, if you've gotten in a fight and you've said something you didn't mean to say, that's probably why. Um, so I train my couples and other people with any difficult emotions to stop before they reach that point of no return. So my guess is your daughter, she's, she's just at the top of that hill. So no amount of rational thinking is going to help. And so doing something, an intervention that's more physical, um, like doing some breathing or doing something um, like stretching, doing something that's going to actually calm her nervous system might be more helpful if she can't like think clearly. And then when that's calm, then you can ask these questions. Um, and I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about that in trauma. Um, but yes, if you are a loved one, it's like you're aware of the racing thoughts, but it's just too much. Um, you need to do something to bring, bring it down, to do something calming. So that can be a deep breath like I did with you at the beginning of breathing into those tense places. It can be doing some stretching, um, doing something gentle that is calming to you. 
Um, coloring, a lot of kids and teens I work with, coloring calms them down. So sometimes you need to engage your body. Um, so that's one thing. Um, so that's a great segue <laughs> to go into trauma. Um, because um, trauma, um, when we have anxiety that comes from this, we can't always use this cognitive behavioral stuff. We can't always just address the thoughts. And you'll understand why once I get into this a bit. Um, so a definition, there's a lot of different definitions of trauma, but the one I've found most helpful is a distressing experience that changes one's view of themselves and the world around them. And I think this is helpful because a lot of times our category for trauma is very narrow. It's like, well, that's um, reserved for veterans who've been in battle. Um, that's reserved for people who grew up in really um, physically abusive homes. Um, that's reserved for people who um, have been in natural disasters, you know, these really catastrophic events um, or really life-threatening events. And that definitely fits um, for trauma. But there's also what I call little t traumas, um, where, yeah, maybe it's not that your life was actually in danger, but you still felt threatened in some way. Um, maybe it wasn't a physical threat, maybe it was an emotional threat. Um, maybe, um, and there's also something called developmental trauma where it's like, yeah, it's not life-threatening events throughout your life. Maybe you didn't grow up in a physically abusive home, but they're just these little things that kind of tore you down over and over. Um, the example I use is um, if you have, maybe you have a parent um, who has a chronic medical issue and you know they're a great person, but because of their medical issue, they're not always able to be present for their kids. So you're a kid and you're coming home from school and you don't know, is mom gonna be feeling good and able to like bake cookies with me after school and have fun with me? Or is she gonna be stuck in bed? Or is she gonna be in such a bad place that I have to call an ambulance for her? That instability, that is traumatizing. And when that happens over and over and over, it's like acid dropping on a rock that slowly eats away at it. So I really want to broaden our perspective on trauma because there's so many people when I share these definitions, they're like, oh, I, yeah, I have trauma. And I'll say that I think all of us have trauma because we live in a fallen, broken world. And we've all had horrible experiences. And it also, it doesn't help to compare. I also hear a lot of people who say, oh, well, well, what happened to me isn't as bad as what happened to these people. And it's like, well, that, that doesn't matter because this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. That's the only scale that you should use. It's just, well, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And it's valid. It's understandable that it impacts you. So trauma actually changes how the brain functions at its most basic levels. Because we have our fight or flight response, you've probably heard about that. Um, maybe you've experienced it. Um, and there's also fight, flight, or freeze. They've realized that freezing is also a survival technique. Like if you think of playing possum, that's what they're doing. Their fight or flight, um, their survival system is telling them to freeze and that's how they're safe because in the animal world, um, a lot of predators, they don't want something that's already dead. And so if they catch something in its mouth and it goes limp and acts like it's dead, a lot of times a predator will be like, oh, well, this is lame, and drop it and walk away. And then the little creature like pops up and runs off and it's fine. And humans do that too. So whenever there's a threat in our environment, we go into fight, flight, or freeze um, because that's how we stay alive. That is involved with the two lower brain structures. So this whole diagram is showing something called triune brain theory. It's the idea that we have three brains in one um, that all kind of have different functions. So the top is the neocortex, and that's our rational or thinking brain. When I was talking about how we climb that hill when we're emotional, that's the part of our brain that shuts down eventually, and we can't think clearly, we can't think logically. That is also the part of our brain that shuts down when we go into fight or flight, when we feel threatened, when we experience trauma. So 
the limbic brain, which is our emotional brain, and the reptilian brain, which is for our instinctual automatic functions, those take over. And in our limbic brain, that like kidney bean looking structure, that's called the amygdala, and that's your alarm center. So when that brain structure perceives that there is a threat, it says, sound the alarm, we need to shut down the neocortex, we need to shut down different body functions that aren't important right now. Because if that bear jumped out of the, out of the bushes and is chasing you, I don't need to be like, oh, what kind of bear is that? What kind of tree is this that I'm climbing? Our rational thought isn't going to keep us alive, right? We just need to be able to either run away or fight off or whatever it is. So our rational thinking brain shuts down. And so afterwards, these primitive, I call them primitive brain structures because, you know, that's just in science, that's what they say, but it's like animals have those structures. The neocortex is what really sets us apart as humans. So those lower brain structures, the limbic and reptilian brain, um, they take in all the sensory information when you are having a traumatic experience, and it's not all conscious. And so later on, when anything that reminds those brain structures of the traumatic experience, they think, oh my gosh, it's happening again. They go into high alert mode, and you go into that fight, flight, or freeze, even if there is no real threat. So it doesn't mean that there's a real threat. It means your brain is perceiving that there is a threat. And trauma makes us perceive threats where there are none because your brain is trying to protect you from it happening again. So um, an example I use is if you're walking down the street in a city and all of a sudden someone pops out with a knife and is like, give me your wallet. Um, and you do, and you're fine, but that was really scary. You went into fight, flight, or freeze, and your brain decided that freeze was the best option, that if you tried to fight this guy, he'd probably stab you and you'd die, or if you ran away, he might chase after you and beat you up. And so you, your brain was like, no, freezing is, and just handing the wallet is the best thing to do for your survival. Um, so that happened. Um, you know, it shook you up. It, you didn't get hurt. And then maybe a couple months later, you're walking around on a different street in a different city, and your heart rate starts to increase, and you get tingly, and you start to feel a little catatonic, like you're having trouble moving. And you're like, what is happening to me? So what you're not consciously aware of is that when you were getting mugged that first time, there was a Chinese food restaurant around the corner, and you were smelling it. But you weren't consciously thinking, mm, Chinese food, because you were getting mugged. And, and so, um, priorities. And so today, months later, you're walking down the street, and there's a Chinese food restaurant right there. And you're smelling it. And that smell is the trauma reminder. Again, there's nothing threatening about Chinese food. Well, most of the time, there's nothing threatening about <laughs> Chinese food. Um, but because it's associated with this traumatic threatening event, your brain experiences that and says, oh my gosh, you're in an unsafe situation. Sound the alarm. So I like to say the amygdala is like the overly helpful friend who's not actually helpful. Um, it's just trying so hard to do its job well. But then it gets in the way, because then it perceives threats where there are no threats. And it can trigger a panic attack or just high anxiety. And the hard part is that you may not know why you're feeling anxious or why you're panicking. So a lot of times when people experience anxiety or panic and they don't know why, um, they're not nervous about anything, there's no thought in their mind causing the anxiety, um, a lot of times it's because there is some sort of trigger or trauma reminder around them. And remember, trauma isn't just a life-threatening event. Um, sometimes it's someone reminds us of maybe someone in our family who um, was difficult for us. Um, for me, I used to work in a group home for foster youth, and there was one girl who I really liked, but every once in a while, she just got under my skin, and I felt really nervous around her and uncomfortable around her. Um, and my supervisor at the time said, who does she remind you of? 
And I was like, no one, she's just a brat and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, don't try to therapize me. I know what you're doing. Um, but then she's like, no, who does she remind you of? And I thought about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, she reminds me of my big sister when we were kids. Because um, my sister, she's a recovering alcoholic and has been sober eight years, praise God. But growing up, she was very selfish. She was very throw her weight around, my way or the highway. Um, and I felt very bullied by her. And this girl was very similar. She threw her weight around. It was like, my way or the highway. And because she reminded me of my big sister, I like reverted back to this like childlike, like, oh, when it's like, I'm in my 30s. And like, I don't live here with you. I get to go home. Like, you're 16. Um, so even just something like that, like it didn't cause me to go into full-blown panic, but it caused me to feel uneasy around this person. And I didn't know why. Um, so my supervisor was helping me to become conscious about what was making me uneasy. So there's a lot of different levels that this could happen at. And again, like that, that trauma reminder for me, it's not like um, my sister beat me up every day, um, but I was afraid of her. Um, she was an unstable person. You kind of never knew what you were going to get. And that still had a traumatizing effect on me um, because it made me view the world as unstable and unpredictable which doesn't feel safe when you're a kid. So again, these trauma reminders, they might manifest as full-blown panic attacks. Um, it might just be that general feeling of uneasiness. Um, and again, if, if that is maybe resonating for you, or you're like, yeah, I don't really know why I'm anxious when I get anxious, there could be that there's something in your environment, or there's something about this person or this situation that reminds you about something really horrible that happened. So again, being curious is really important to say, what does this situation remind me of? What does, who does this person remind me of? Um, and also, if you're noticing that you, you're getting anxious a lot or you're having panic attacks semi-regularly, to see, if, is there any pattern? Um, do I tend to have panic attacks in, in certain situations or environments? Um, for me, I used to get panic attacks. I haven't had one in years, praise God. Um, but I, I was able to see the theme. And then I was able to kind of do some things to have power and control over it um, and to, to ask for help. I, for me, um, it was just anything that has to do with bodily harm, whether I'm watching it on a movie or TV or even if I'm just hearing about it. And in my profession, I hear about abuse and I hear about violence. So that was kind of problematic. <laughs> and, um, but I learned in grad school, I just had to let professors know, like, hey, I have a hard time with this. And I realized if I knew that I could leave at any time, I would calm down. I would feel empowered to do that. Um, and then I didn't get panic attacks. So if you can kind of see, like, oh, I tend to get anxious in these kinds of situations, Again, you can maybe do something about it. Um, so also, let's see. I'm going to read this later. Um, so some different things you can do, like once you are maybe a little more aware, um, trauma can be more difficult. Um, as we learned, since our neocortex shuts down, um, it's really not helpful to use the cognitive behavioral therapy because that is very logical and rational, right? Um, so that's why reading scripture and prayer just may not work for that situation. But there's other things we can do, like I was just sharing with the response to that question, engaging your body um, and directly um, communicating with your nervous system with those lower brain structures because um, you can't just tell your brain you're safe. It has to experience that it's safe. Um, I often tell people, do what you couldn't do during the trauma. Um, so for me, it was getting up and leaving the room. I was able to do that. Um, so that kind of showed my brain, like, you're safe. You're OK. Um, I had a client who stopped. Her, her friend was driving her, and she had her stop the car. And she got out and did jumping jacks. Because you don't do jumping jacks when you're in danger, right? That doesn't make sense. So you're showing your brain, like, no, it's not the same, and you're retraining it. There are also specific treatments for trauma. So if you're thinking, yeah, I think this is me, and I want to do something about it, finding a therapist who specifically works with trauma, because it's very different than just regular talk therapy. 
Um, I don't have time to explain too much because um, I'm basically supposed to be done right now. Um, but there are some specific trauma treatments. So if you're researching therapists, look for someone who specifically works with trauma and talk to them about what they offer. Um, so I want you to leave here with hope knowing once you've identified what's going on for you, you can do something about it. And you're not alone. God is with you. And I'm going to leave this quote up as you leave if you want to read it. It's from, I think, one of the best trauma researchers right now. He wrote an amazing book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's all about, he goes way more in depth into how trauma affects the brain and body. Um, and then he goes through all these different ways that you can treat it and heal from it. So it's a very hopeful book. And so as you think about, huh, where does my anxiety come from? Um, I also want to remind you that you have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not sure, um, to ask him, you know, to give you that wisdom um, and to know that whether your anxiety is coming from a medical issue, your thought life, or a trauma, that God is with you in it and he cares about it. And there are things you can do. So I have to let you go, even though I have so much more to say to you. But thank you so much for being a wonderful group. And have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care.